Everybody, good morning. My name is Dominic, one of the pastors here. Glad to be with you. I know that Hume is happening. I was here dropping off my kids this morning, and I know that Hume is in full effect. I just looked on like 360 where they're at, and they're just out, out of the grapevine. Um, but I know Hume is happening because my son just texted me. That my phone is ringing right now saying, is it cool that I get a mullet this week? So Hume is awesome. Super excited. I may get a mullet. He wants to cut his hair like a mullet. Yeah. Business in the front, party in the back, mullet. So, super excited. That has nothing to do with our message, but I just know that Hume's happening, so it's super fun. Uh, We're in the book of John. If you have a Bible, print, or pixel, you can turn to John chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 30 today. I hope you've been enjoying, if you've been with us for a while, uh, the book of John and coming back into it. It's been a lot of fun and got a lot of feedback from everybody just saying we love being in a book and trying to understand God's heart and understand the book of John, guided by the Holy Spirit, penned by John. Uh, to point us to the life that is in Jesus, to point us to the life that is found in him, him the Messiah, Jesus. And for 21 chapters, we're going to look at all these claims that Jesus makes and claims that people make about him to come to the understanding of he is the Messiah and there's life in his name. And so hope you've been enjoying that with us. We're going to dive in today. And we're going to pick up where Steve left off last week, and he joked on Father's Day, what a message, judgment. And we're going to continue with judgment this morning. One of the things that's beautiful about going through the book is that we don't skip around and pick different verses that we like and feel good. We just go through and say, what does God's word say? And we're not arguing, you're not debating with me this morning, you're debating with what God's word says. And if you want to wrestle with him with that, you're welcome to do that. That's healthy. But that's what we're going to do today. So we're going to look at a discourse that's continuing the one from last week. As a way of reminder, we see that Jesus is this uh, growing figure. He's growing in fame, and he becomes a polarizing figure. Israel's waiting for Messiah, and they're waiting for the one who's going to come and make things right. And Jesus is looking like he has all the signs to be Messiah. Josephus, one of the Jewish uh, historians, would say that during this time where Jesus is talking, there's been about 65 people that would come before and after within that first century, within that short period of time, claiming to be Messiah. And Jesus says all the looks and optics of what the Messiah might be. But then he starts doing things that are countercultural to what they were expecting. The Jews, as we see Jews in here, Jews literally meaning the Jews that opposed him, not the whole Jewish people, but these Jewish leaders. And Jesus is disrupting and dismantling a system right in front of them that they've thought they've known and studied and devoted their lives to. And Jesus disrupts him the most, as you see in the beginning of chapter 5, that he's done all these beautiful miracles. He's maybe talked to people they didn't anticipate him being. He's fraternized with people they weren't expecting him to be with. But then he does the unthinkable, and he heals a man on a Jewish festival 600 yards away from the temple where everybody's worshiping. And he heals him and instructs him to pick up his mat and go. And he does it on a Sabbath day, which violates huge law in the Jewish tradition and faith. And it's in that moment that instantaneously the the Jews say, we want to persecute this man. So he goes from maybe Messiah to no way he's Messiah. Messiah would never heal on the Sabbath and break the Sabbath. Clearly, we need to get this guy out. We need to cut off whatever source of his ministry is and get him out. He's not him. And so when they confront Jesus and say, who's the man? And the man who's healed says, it's Jesus over there. They confront him. And Jesus has the audacity to say and claim 
that God is his father and the father works on the Sabbath, so I work on the Sabbath. So they moved from persecution to prosecution. It was enough to say that he healed and instructed somebody to carry both violations that were violated and could, if proven guilty, would be the result of death. And now he's claiming oneness with God. So, so they go from, we don't like this guy, to we need to kill this guy. In a moment. And last week's message would be that now Jesus confronts him and has a conversation with him. And there's a guy named Mike Erie. He wrote a book where he talked about Jesus being the beauty pageant Jesus with the beautiful sash on and just like the luscious locks and he's just walking everywhere and children are coming to him. And he's a flannel graph Jesus. He's so beautiful and friendly. But here we see Jesus is not really skilled in confrontational skills. He's not trying to diffuse this moment. He's fully confident in who he is. He's fully confident in the authority that he has and the authority that he gets from the Father and he doesn't back down. He pours salt on the wound. He pours gas on the fire. And he says, not only is the Father and I one, but he's made me judge. How about that? And here's how I'm going to judge, life and death. And they're furious, and they're infuriated that this man would instruct somebody to carry on the Sabbath, heal on the Sabbath, claim to be God, and then claim to be a judge and they want him dead. And this is where our text picks up. If you have a Bible, John chapter 5, verse 30, we'll begin with. He says, by myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I do not seek to please myself, but him who sent me. Right away we see the picture that Jesus is a just judge, because he's in step and in line and one with the Father. We'll find out that the opposite is true of the Jews that are trying to condemn him. That Jesus is constantly in the pattern of deflecting glory. You'll remember in chapter 2, if you're with us, that there's these people that love him for his acts, but they don't love him and recognize him and worship him as the one and only begotten son. And Jesus is deflecting glory and saying, my glory is not in question. I am who the Father says I am. And as he continues, he says, not only am I a just judge, but now I recognize that I'm on trial. It's Jesus versus the Jews. More importantly, maybe, Jesus versus religion. The system of religion that you've structured your lives around, Jewish leaders, is now on trial against me. And there's something that's combative in nature. And so because of that, as a just judge, I am now the accused and as the accused, I'm going to call witnesses in my defense. He says in verse 31, I test, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not valid. There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is valid. Jesus is secure in who he is. He's confident in who he is. He has no question about his authority. He has no question about his sovereignty. He has no question about his sonship, that he's fully man and fully God, but because he loves this men in this group that are trying to condemn him, 
He recognizes the system and structure in place and appeals on that level to them. In Deuteronomy 19.15, it says this. It says that one witness is not enough to convict a man accused of a crime or offense he may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Deuteronomy 17.6 says, No one shall be put to death on the witness of only one witness. So Jesus says, if I was just my only witness, it would not be valid. Better said is, you should just believe that I'm the Son of God. As he goes through this discourse in chapter 8, verse 14, he'll say that my word is true. My testimony about myself is enough. I know who I am. I am that I am. But because you're not understanding that, Jesus, on trial, let me call witnesses in my defense. And in the Jewish legal proceeding, he now calls these witnesses. And it's not based on his cleverness of speech. That's not how a trial was conducted during this time. It was conducted on the validity and credibility and character of the witnesses called. I'll say that again. The validity, the credibility, and the character of the witnesses that were called. And so Jesus says, I'm alone enough. That's credible enough. I'm the son of God. I'm the light of the world. But because you don't believe that, I call my first witness. And his first witness is found in verse 33. You have sent to John, meaning John the Baptist, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept the human testimony, but I mentioned it so that you might be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and he chose, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. John the Baptist, New Testament, and again, Josephus would both say that there was this uh, excitement around who he was. There was this messianic expectation that potentially John the Baptist is the Messiah. We see him in all the other Gospels, but he shows up in chapter 1 of John, and he's preaching a message of repent and believe. Everybody say, repent and believe. Repent and believe. And he's teaching, and the droves are coming to him, and he's baptizing, 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 and followers, he's gaining a followership. So much so that the Jewish leaders who are anticipating and waiting for the Messiah come to him. And they come and say, are you the Messiah? Are you the one we've been waiting for? No. Are you the prophet? No. Are you Elijah? No. Well, who the heck are you? I'm the forerunner for the one that's going to come. And I encourage you to read chapter 1 this week. In verse 19 and following, we see John the Baptist's testimony, the first person on the stand in Jesus versus religion. And what his testimony is, is this, is that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And how do I know it's him? My testimony, John, says this. He says that God the Father spoke to me, and he told me that whoever the Spirit remains on like a dove, that's the one. That's Messiah. That's the one you've been longing for. And so when John sees Jesus coming, he says, there he is. 
Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And reluctantly, he baptizes Jesus and in this watery grave from death to life, as he lifts Jesus from the water, the voice of the Father affirms the credibility of who Jesus is as the Son of God. This is my testimony. And Jesus says, John was a lamp. And some believe that Psalm 132, 17, that says that, that God prepares a lamp for his anointed. But he's this lamp. It's, it lights the room, but it's not the light of the world. It's the light of the room to point to where the light switch in the room is to turn on the whole house lights. It's the little lamp between your feet so you can go from darkness to full light where it's too much glory. And Jesus says, that's me. John chapter 1, verse 7, Logos made flesh. God made flesh is light, and there's life in him. His life is light for all men. John was a great testimony, but he was a forerunner of one to come, the light of the world. Behold the Lamb of God that was slain. He's the Son of God. This is my testimony about Jesus. And you accepted him, Jews, for a little while until he aggravated you. At some point, maybe even now because it's past tense, some theologians think he's already beheaded at this point. John, we liked you for a little bit, but then it got a little disruptive. You went in a different way, not so much anymore. And I love what Jesus says in this moment. He says, He's talking, and, but in verse 34, he stops midway as if he's discerning the hearts of the people that he's talking to. And he says, not that I need a man's testimony. God the Father is my testimony. My word is sufficient of who I am. I know who I am. And John the Baptist, not that I need it, but you need it. You need it so that you might be saved. My message isn't condemnation. My message is salvation, and I long for you to come and be saved. So John the Baptist, you may be seated. We call the second witness. 36. He says, I have an even weightier testimony than that of John. For the very work of the Father that he has given me to finish, of which I am doing, testifies the Father has sent me. The second witness. My works that the Father has given me. Works that you're calling into question that led you to want to persecute me actually speak on behalf of the Father and speak on me in my favor and who, who I am. You, you remember the sight to the blind and the deaf who could hear and the lame who could walk, the demons that were cast out and people made whole? That was the work of the Father. I don't do anything independently, and I don't do anything for my glory. The Father says something, I respond. And this communicates and clarifies God's heart for his people. He loves the broken. He loves the brokenhearted. He loves the downcast. In the places where you thought light wouldn't reach, that's where the light of the world goes. Jews, religious leaders, if you were looking for Messiah, here I am, about my Father's business, about the things of the kingdom. 
How can you not see John's testimony, now my work's testimony, that I and the Father are one and I'm the Son of God, the one you've been waiting for? And yet you still don't believe. Next witness, verse 37. And the Father who sent me himself testifies concerning me. You want to talk about credibility? You want to talk about character? In my defense, though I need no defense, I'm the just judge. As you are longing for justice in this moment, I'm telling you I'm the fulfillment of God's justice here in the flesh. And John testifies of it, my works testify it, and the Father testifies. Well, what does the Father testify? Out of the watery grave he comes out. That is my beloved Son in who I am well pleased. He, the Word made flesh, was our plan A to come to you and bring salvation and redemption and reconciliation and fulfill the justice you've all been longing for. He's the fulfillment of it. We see God the Father testify about Jesus at other times. At the moment of the transfiguration, they're on the hill and Jesus is glowing and shining, kind of like, I don't know, whatever that vampire movie was where they had like diamonds and stuff like that on his face. Anybody know? Twilight, that's what it is. He's shining, he's glowing. And the father shows up and says, hey disciples, that's my son in whom I'm well pleased. And Peter goes, should I put up a tent? He's like, shut up, Peter. No, it's the son of God. It's the one you've been waiting for. Time and time again, the father testifies, Jesus, that's my son. John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins. He's the Son of God. My works point to the heart of the Father that he's the one who sent me. I don't do anything without him. And now the Father himself testifies me about me. And he says, I'm his son in whom he's well pleased. Religious leaders, how do you not see this? How are you missing all these signs? In a moment of infuriation, he guts them even further. He says, this is why you haven't accepted this testimony. Verse 37, you've never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you. For you do not believe in the one that he sent. I know it's a quiet room, but can we all appreciate what was just said? To the religious leaders, clarifying and defining the order of God's heart in society, making sure that praise is true and accurate, Jesus looks at him and is a just judge as a, the fulfillment of God's justice and says, you know why you can't see me? You don't know God. You don't know what he looks like. You don't know his voice. And you don't have his word in your heart. You don't know him. You can't see him. You don't have his word in your heart. And if he was talking, you wouldn't even know it. You know how I know? Because if you did, you would know that I'm him. Here I am right in front of you. This is what my voice sounds like. And you can't hear it. This is what God in flesh form looks like. And here I am. See, what you've cemented your identity and life in, you've missed it altogether completely. 
religious leaders. You can't see it. And he goes on to say, verse 39, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify me, and yet you refuse to come to me to have life. The fourth witness on the stand, scripture. John the Baptist's testimony, but I I don't need man's testimony. God the Father's testimony, that's the most credible witness I have. My works speaking of the works of the Father. And scripture. Now you would think these men would go, okay, now you're in our realm. Now we're cooking, baby. You're right, we diligently study scripture. That's how we come to the conclusion that you're not him. So you want to come into our territory, Jesus? Let's go. Greatest minds, all together, interpreting and defining and clarifying God's heart. Here we are. And yet, Jesus says, you study them because you think that's your source of eternal life. And in your study, you've missed it all together. You see, Scripture was meant and is still meant to point to the source of life, not to give life. It points to the author of life. There's no life in this. The life goes, Jesus is life and light to all men. And this is a testimony of him. I don't worship this book. I worship the God of this book. And your diligent study, your intelligent you're intellectual. There's no, there's no doubt about it. You have great brain capacity, but how are you so dumb to not see me? You're studying, and you don't even know what you're looking for, religious leaders. Because you don't know his voice, you've never seen his form, and you don't have his word in your heart, and you study Scripture as your source of salvation and eternal life. But I'm telling you, I fundamentally reject all that. I am the life. I am what you've been looking for and waiting for and hoping for. Rabbi Hillel was a popular voice at the time. He was uh, the father of taking the Mishnah, which was oral law, and, and writing it. And in short, Hillel would say that the more law that you study, the more life that you get. And clearly these leaders are subscribing to that. We study scripture diligent. Your minds are intelligent. You're loving God with your mind, but you're failing to see who he's pointing to. Jesus says, reject Hillel. Reject Mishnah. I'm him who you've been waiting for. Eternal life comes through me because I am the just judge. I am in the fulfillment of God's justice that you're longing for. I'm the satisfier of God's justice that you'll come to see that I am the final sacrifice, the once and for all sacrifice that creates life and light for all men. Religious leaders, your intellect is not the problem. Your heart disposition is the problem. You can't see me. And why? Verse 41, I do not accept praise from men but I know you, and I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. 
I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe if you accept praise from another, yet make no effort to obtain the praise that comes only from God? Religious leaders, you have no love for God in your heart. All your study for naught. Jesus simply says, my glory is not in question. My glory is secure. My identity is not in question. My identity is secure. I'm not cowering by this moment. I'm stepping up and stepping in confidence because I know who and whose I am. I'm the son of God. I'm the lamb that takes away all sin. I'm God's one and only. I am the light of the world. And yet you love and glory in gaining glory for yourself. God's love is not in your heart. You see me heal a man, and the first thing you think is kill that man who healed him. God's love is not in your heart. You're waiting for the military power to come and take things and make things right. It's a prophetic statement that Jesus says, but it's a profound statement as well. It's a prophetic statement saying that Again, they'll look for other leaders and say, is that the Messiah? As they see masses growing and followership growing of these leaders who are about their glory and taking over Rome and taking the kingdom for themselves. And yet what you have in Jesus is a Jesus who preaches an upside-down kingdom, who deflects glory for himself and says, I do only what the Father tells me to do. Who says, instead of kicking Rome's butt right now, There's actually a greater kingdom to come than the kingdom of my own establishing here. I and the Father are one. I only do what he says to do. There's actually a greater purpose. Rome, no doubt, is an oppressor, but there's a more oppressive and crushing thing that's sin, that separates and violates this holy God. And I, in the fulfillment of the one to fulfill God's wrath and justice, You do not have love in your hearts. You do not know what you're looking for. And you accept the praise of others and make no effort to praise God. See, I say love your enemy. I say pray for those who persecute you. I say the meek will inherit earth. I say, blessed are the peacemakers because they'll be called sons of God. I say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness while they'll be filled. It's an upside-down kingdom. It's not the Messiah they expected. They read Isaiah 9 and say, no, he's got a government and he sits on the throne of David and he rules and reigns and now there's peace. And Jesus is saying, yep, but not how you thought and not how you anticipated, and not how you expected. He calls his final witness. Verse 45. But do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. I love this verse. Jesus says the just judge is the fulfillment of God's justice, as a satisfier of God's justice who will ultimately be killed and crushed and crucified and buried and rise again as a restorer of God's justice who will triumphantly rise again. 
and make all things new. He says, I'm not the accuser. I come to give life. There's an accuser, but he's not me. And in this trial, I'm not here to accuse you. I'm here so that you might be saved and know that I am who I say I am. But there is an accuser for you. Let's call Moses to the stand. Your accuser, verse 45, is Moses, on whom you have set your hopes. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? An insane moment in this trial. Again, you want to talk scripture? Now you're in our court. Moses, come on. Oh, we're experts on Moses. He blew it. Those are some pretty good arguments, John. Okay, we'll give you that scripture. Ouch, that hurt a little bit. Moses, oh, you're done. It's over. Set, match, done. See, Moses is our intercessor. He's on Mount Sinai and he comes with law and says, here it is. This is what God's heart and purpose and plan for you. This is how you function in society and live well with one another, guided by these boundaries of Yahweh. And they think 10's okay, but let's make it 613. That's probably a little even more clarifying of God's heart. And Moses sides with us. And yet Jesus says, he's the one that accuses you. If you believe Moses, you believe me. If John wasn't enough, if my testimony wasn't enough, if my work's testimony wasn't enough, if the Father's testimony wasn't enough, if Scripture wasn't enough, Moses sides with me. What was once your mediator is now your accuser. First five books penned by Moses, most believe that he wrote Genesis. So Jesus says, you remember in 315 although they didn't have like verses and stuff, but do you remember Genesis? There's somebody who's doing this on a stupid servant, serpent. Yeah, that's me. Enmity between, remember that? He's gonna strike the hill, but I'll bruise it. That's me. Remember Deuteronomy 18, 15, where there's gonna be this prophet that comes out of the line of David and restores justice and makes things right? That was me. If you just go on Moses, the whole time Moses is saying, Law crushes. It can't just be about law. None could obtain to it. None could subscribe to it. You're going to fail. And so there's one that needs to come and provide rescue. And Moses is not your rescue. It's found in me, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the Son of God in whom the Father beloves and is well pleased in. His works that testify of this. Scripture that points to him. And now Moses who condemns you and accuses you because you've missed it. There's no love of God in your heart. You wouldn't even know what to look for if it was standing right in front of you. You've missed it. To be saved is to believe in me. I am who I say I am. Our story ends for now. But what's true about them 
can be true about us today. I'm not much different from that Jewish religious leader. It's easy on this side of the cross and in this side of history to go, what a bunch of idiots. How did they not see it coming? Nobody saw it coming. The disciples were still going, at the end going, who's Jesus? Like, we thought he was going to come and Rome was going to be over, but our friend's hanging and we're all going to go. Nobody saw it coming. And what was true about those religious leaders where Jesus says, this is how I judge as a just judge is this. Apart from me, your heart is deceitfully wicked and beyond cure. Apart from me, the propensity of the heart is to go after self-glory and self-grandization and self-effort. Apart from me, there's no hope. And I'll judge the living and the dead. There's a reality of eternity with me and apart from me. And yet the good news is that Jesus, who's the fulfiller of God's justice, becomes the satisfier of God's justice as a once and for all sacrifice and becomes the restorer of God's justice, making all things new. And the inviter to be justice makers along with him. As he listened to the Father, now we can listen to him, guided by the Holy Spirit, and respond. And what the Jews at this time failed to see was right in front of them the whole time. The irony of them demanding justice and calling for injustice, which ultimately leads to injustice happening, was fulfilled in a 700-year-old prophecy in Isaiah 53 that there would be one to come who would be rejected and despised by all men, a man of sorrows, that his whole creation would reject him and mar him, beaten beyond the recognition of, is this even a man? And like a lamb led to the slaughter, he would go quietly to pay a penalty for transgressions, And then after paying that penalty to be the intercessor for those who transgressed, he was right there the whole time. He was the fulfillment of God's justice, the satisfier of God's justice, the restorer of God's justice. And in God's justice replaces with belief in him a heart of flesh that's deceitfully wicked with a new heart and a new identity rooted in him, not based off of works so that no one could boast, not based off of scripture study and heritage and lineage, but solely in him as the light and life of all the world. As we close and pick back up in verse 6 or chapter 6 next week, just three thoughts for us. I don't know if I can come up with a new question. I keep trying to come up with a new question of John, but it's just this. Who do you say he is? John, for 21 chapters, is begging the question, who do you say Jesus is? So to say it in a new way, I'll steal from C.S. Lewis and say, is he liar, lunatic, or Lord? Certainly all sound right. He's lying. That's why we've got to stone him. That's why we've got to persecute him. That's why we've got to kill him. 
He's crazy. Somebody get this guy out of here. Cut off the knees of his ministry and whatever's happening. Cut off his influence. He's crazy. Or he's the Lord. He is who he says he was. And the good news is wherever you're at in faith this morning, the five witnesses that Jesus calls are still here for us as testimonies to look. We have the transcripts of the trial to study and look and come to answer that question. Is he liar, lunatic, or Lord? Who do you say he is this morning? I say he's Lord. I've come to that conclusion that he's Lord. And not that he was Lord in my life, but that he is Lord in life. Who do you say he is? Second, where do you place your confidence in? These Jewish leaders, confidence in their study and their intellect and their prestige and being from Abraham and the right lineage and walking around and parading that there was some big stuff 